Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. O risen Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection as we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. Our scripture today, if you would care to look at it in the Pew Bible, can be found in the New Testament on page 90. The scripture is Luke 24, 1 through 12. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women went to the tomb, bringing the fragrant spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't know what to make of this. Suddenly, two men were standing beside them in gleaming bright clothing. The women were frightened and bowed their faces toward the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here, but has been raised. Remember what he told you while he was still in Galilee? That the human one must be handed over to sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. When they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Their words struck the apostles as nonsense, and they didn't believe the women. But Peter ran to the tomb. When he bent over to look inside, he saw only the linen cloth. Then he returned home, wondering what had happened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I am amazed at how much of my childhood was spent looking for things. And that doesn't mean that I was looking for my homework or my sneakers, though that spent a lot of time, uh, but looking. I remember as a kid playing I Spy, right? um, uh, having that opportunity to play in a space that usually there was a lot of shh and not a lot of opportunity for a kid to be a kid. I can remember uh, playing also uh, Where's Waldo, right? Um, looking in that book, trying to spot the red and white um, shirt, the bobble hat, and the glasses that y'all would know best as Harry Potter glasses. Spotting things and looking for them. You know, back in the day when we took uh, car vacation rides, um, went to see relatives multiple states away, again, it was a game of playing find and search. We didn't have iPads or Wi-Fi cars or those opportunities. And so you kept tally of the different license plates that you found, either alphabetical or looking for all the states. Again, it was that searching and finding theme that seemed to be in and about all of our childhoods. 
Even today, with uh, hunting for Easter eggs, we're searching, we're looking, we're hoping to find. I like the story of how Where's Waldo comes about. Uh, Where's Waldo actually wasn't Waldo to begin with. It was Where's Wally, uh, because it first originated in the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, There was a British book editor who wanted uh, a member of his art department to make a character with peculiar features so that when there was a children's book with a crowd pictured, the peculiar figure would be the focal point of that crowd. And after doing a number of these, they find it quite fun, and they decided, what if we just did a whole book of pictures of crowds with that focal point peculiar character in the middle? Now, it was funny, if you are where's Waldo kind of a person, uh, is um, though it is a crowd, the illustration usually contains uh, particular red herrings or deceptive use of red and white in stripes uh, or those black rimmed glasses on people who weren't Waldo. Apparently, it struck a chord because Where's Waldo got translated into 13 different languages with uh, the um, different names of Waldo, right? Wally to Waldo to who knows what. In fact, I'd be willing to read you the list of how his name changes based upon what language he's in, but then I'd be butchering another uh, 12 languages in addition to the one I'm butchering right now. (laughs) Looking and finding trying to spot. I remember um, recently with a particular uh, kiddo who might or might not live in my house, that playing I Spy was always torturous for me, especially if it was in a place that had all a similar palette of colors. For example, in here, I Spy something gray. Is it the first step? No. Is it the second step? No. Is it the third? Or I spy something um, Aggie uh, maroon. Is it the first pew on the left side? No. Is it the first pew on the second side? No. Right. Sometimes I spy when there's not a lot of colors present can be torturous just to find the place where that particular color is. Our scripture passage lends itself to this searching and finding. Uh, Luke's gospel account has the women headed to the tomb. And let's be honest, Luke's take on this is that they have gone to do women's work. They're going to prepare the body. They're going to clean up the mess. They're going to make things look presentable because the assumption was that folks would come by the tomb to pay their respects to Jesus. And so because it had been multiple days, they wanted to um, make the body presentable, uh, anoint it with oil and spices so that it would be a good experience for those who stopped by. Now, in that culture, women traditionally anointed the body. Now, they went expecting a dead Jesus. Now, I I don't think that's a shock to any of y'all, I mean, you didn't come here today expecting a dead Jesus. You came here expecting brass and Easter lilies and and joyful, triumphal music and a hope-filled message about resurrection. 
Let's not mistake. The women went to the tomb expecting a dead Jesus, expecting an, not an empty tomb, but a tomb that contained their teacher and friend. Now, when the women go back to tell the rest of the disciples what they had found, right? Because they encounter an angel, an angel that says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Go and tell everyone what you have witnessed. So they do. But see, the rest of the disciples, the men, they discount what the women say. Oh, come on, it's, it's just women's talk. It's just gossip. It's just eccentric tales about what could be, but we all know what is and what isn't. Now, that's a little bit obnoxious because let's be honest, in the midst of Luke's telling of Jesus's gospel, in chapter eight, verses one and three, we learn that these same women who have gone to prepare uh, the body of Jesus, they're also the ones who funded the ministry of Jesus. That in chapter 23, that they are there at the trial, and then as they walk to the, um, uh, as they walk to the side of the crucifixion, that they are there when Jesus' dead body is put into the tomb. These are not women who come lately and you know, sensationalize what's going on. They have been the core. They have been part of the movement. They have no reason to tell an idle tale. They're telling what they know. And so Peter, the disciple, uh, he runs to the tomb and looks inside and sees the burial clothes folded up neatly and runs back to the disciples and tells them everything they know. Well, this is strange, right? We're not going to believe the women who funded the ministry, who um, uh, were at the trial, walked to uh, the place of the crucifixion and watched him be buried, but we'll believe Peter, who's in the process of denying, Peter three or denying Jesus three times before the cock crows. It's an interesting moment. I wonder if that's some way how we struggle with finding the resurrection in the midst of a palette that the world creates for us, full of grays and blands and darkness. Do we believe the people who tell us sightings of the, revelation or of the resurrection? Or do we dismiss them as people who are eccentric, emotional, people who don't use logic and must be under some sort of influence? I think it's interesting to start thinking about the resurrection, not as an event that happened in history that we come together to memorialize, but rather as something real and powerful today. You know, um, we use that language of memorialize uh, when we do communion, but it's not memorialize as if something happened far off, but rather to remember, to remember, to allow Jesus to connect us with the past, to be present with us in the future, and to in the present, and to change the future. For example, uh, those of you who've been married, you remember uh, at the wedding reception, they take the top level of that wedding cake, they wrap it in varieties of aluminum foil and saran wrap, and they put it in multiple Ziploc bags, and they put it in the back of the freezer for when? Your first year's wedding anniversary. 
Now you remember that moment at the wedding reception, maybe even before then when you were tasting cake. Usually that's the part that the grooms get excited about in wedding planning. That cake set tastes completely different in the moment of the wedding reception. It's almost a a terrifying thing to say that we take a years-old cake out of the freezer, we unpackage it, we set it before this fresh-eyed, wonderful couple and say, here, celebrate your marriage. It's frost-bitten, it's got freezer burn, the, the, the icing crumbles right as you touch it. You suffer through it because most likely it was your parents or your in-laws who preserved that wonderful treat and you feel like it's eating you know, your vegetables, right? You gotta clear your plates. The difference between in the moment and thinking about it afterwards at one year's anniversary, that's the gap I'm hoping to close. You see, we're not gathering to remember the Easter that happened so many years ago, but we are present for the moment of new life beginning in us again today. And let's be honest, new life and resurrection is terrifying. Resurrection turns the world upside down. I mean, if you're stuck in a pallet of death and difficulty and destruction, the last thing you need is for certain things to start coming alive. Feels like you might be stuck in The Walking Dead. I mean, if the dead don't stay dead, what can you really count on in this world? Now, there are those who would say, no matter how hard you look for resurrection in today's world, you won't find it because it's not real. Those people like to take the different versions of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and compare them and say, all four show different stories of the resurrection. They greatly differ from one another. It can't be true. We like consistent, predictable, logical. Can I get an engineer to say amen? (laughs) But resurrection is not about predictability. It's not about consistency. It's about the belief that God loves us so much that there is nothing so lost, so disregarded, so dead, so ruined that God can't breathe life back into it. So why do you look for the living among the dead? You look for the living among the dead because there are little moments. It's almost like a spiritual version of Where's Waldo, where we are looking for that moment of new life, that moment of self-giving love, that moment when all seemed lost, but God showed up. I like to say that it's like looking for the Easter lily in the midst of your lives. Where is the lily that's proclaiming the new life that God has in store for us. Instead of the red and white shirt and the bobble hat and the Harry Potter glasses, what if we just looked hard for that which is proclaiming the good news of Jesus? So it's hard to find that. It's like playing I Spy in this room, right? It's very hard to to figure out what is difficulty and what is new life. I mean, in in the current political environment, it's hard to find new life and and forgiveness, right? I don't care whether you're red or or, or blue or purple. It's hard. The economy is difficult. The environment seems to decline. Diagnosis of disease, losses of loved ones. 
It seems as if resurrection is not even on the page, not even in the picture. But, but you see, when looking for things, there's two trends that happen. You either are attuned for what you're looking for, and as you look for it, you find it, or you are so attuned for what you're looking for that you miss it at every pass. Sometimes we expect a, a particular uh, fairy tale version of the resurrection. We, we expect that there will be no difficulty, uh, no challenge, uh, that the story should be uh, a movement from good to good to better. And if we find ourselves sitting in not so good, well, then the story must not be resurrection for us because God doesn't want not so good. God wants good to good to better. But let's be honest, something has to die before it can be resurrected. That not all of the story is a fairy tale of beautiful images from good to good to better. But for resurrection to have its move, it must be a story of difficulty. It must be a story where death and difficulty and calamity have struck. So I went looking for resurrection this week. I found it on Tuesday, late in the afternoon, after hearing about the terrorist attack in Brussels. I found it by reading a story not the story about the 31 people killed and more than 300 wounded when bombs went off in the airport and in the metro, but I found it in reading a CNN story about two friends, both named Laura, one a doctor and one just a friend. The doctor, Laura, was dropping the friend, Laura, off at the airport to fly back to the United States. They were both Americans. They heard the explosions while still outside the airport. They first went to turn to run to the police station, but they both stopped, grabbed each other's hands, and prayed. And after praying, Dr. Laura ran into the building. And let's be honest, that's a sign of resurrection right there. That's self-sacrificial love. That's compassion for others. Now, you might say that Dr. Laura must have been an emergency room doctor. She was trained in triage and first responders, but no, she wasn't. They didn't tell us what um, uh, discipline of medicine, but she said as she ran through uh, the room helping and triaging, that she was overwhelmed with the smells and the sights, that she was overwhelmed by how many people were hurt and crying out for help, but she just kept working. Now, other Laura didn't go inside. Dr. Laura at one point runs out and says, you've got to come. There's lots of people who need help. And other Laura said, no, I'm a coward. I got to like honesty, right? And Dr. Laura says, come with me and grabbed her hand. And together they ran into the building. And Dr. Laura assigned other Laura to take care of two English speaking girls who'd been injured until first responders showed up. And when the first responders showed up, they were thankful for the triage care that Dr. Laura had given. And John Kerry, later on, in talking about bravery and stories of hope, named her as he talked about signs of hopefulness. 
You see, it's not hard to find those lilies that proclaim the resurrection, those people who have self-sacrificial love, who are compassionate and lay down their lives for others. It's not hard to find moments of resurrection. Even in those darkest moments, God is working. In fact, I've heard it said that God works best when things are at their worst, when things are silent, when things seem as if nothing will come again. We find that in the three days of Holy Week as Jesus lays in the tomb dead. I've always liked Mr. Rogers. It's kind of one of those things. You know, some people are Captain Kangaroo. Others are Mr. Rogers. I'm all in on Mr. Rogers. I liked his uh, quote after 9-11. He he said, when tragedy happens, when calamity strikes, when you are faced to have to explain to your children why difficult events like this happen in the world, this is what you tell them. Try and find the helpers. Spot the people helping the police, the ambulance, the firefighters, the just usual everyday heroes who have decided that there's too much pain in the world and that they will help. Spot the helpers. Sure, uh, those who perpetuate the attacks will get a lot of airtime, but it's your job to find the helpers. I think that uh, is perfectly good advice for a church looking for resurrection. Look for it in your life. Who are the helpers who help you down the road? Who are you helping to bring about new life? How are the ways and moments when you are willing to forgive what really shouldn't be forgiven and willing to help those who resist helping you? And then do what Peter did. Do what the women did. Tell people about it. That even though things seem dark, even though it seems like a pallet of destruction and difficulty, when you find the Easter lily moment, tell people about it. For it's in proclamation that the world begins to hear of this amazing love that God has for us, so much so to send his son to walk among us, live laugh, love, and die for us, and be raised on the third day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.